Welcome on The Green Trek. My name is Dikte and I'm your host on this podcast about travel. The aim of this series is to explore the intersections and relationships between leisure, tourism and human mobility under the term of travel. This episode's journey is about travel and perspective. This is the second episode of our two episodes conversation with professor in art history Jeff Lehmann from Bard College in Berlin. So in case you haven't listened to the first part of this conversation, I will recommend you to do that first as we are about to dive into the wonders of the Chinese artist Wang Qingmeng's hand scroll, which we were introduced to in the first part of the conversation. You can also find a link to the image and more about the artist in the show notes. We ended our last part of the conversation with talking more about different forms of perspectives on art and how these can actually have an influence on how we perceive and encounter nature today. We will jump right back into that topic and enter a moment in the conversation where Jeff and I kind of get carried away with the conversation and forget that we are recording. And to me, those moments always make a good episode. So I hope you will enjoy that as well. Remember that the sound is still from a charming kitchen in Berlin. So this is the sound landscape you are about to enter. Let's start the journey. On a short note before we start this conversation, Jeff had just told us how perspective is cultural specific, and that is one way of representing space, but it's not the only one. Like in the hand scroll, we don't have one fixed viewpoint. And so what happens when we start to relate to nature while we are traveling, not from this one point, but from multiple viewpoints? Now I think we are ready. I was just about to say, oh yeah, the the mountains that you cannot see completely clearly, they are like yeah. emerging, but I feel like that has a lot to do with the way I have been raised up in thinking about perspective. Mm. So I will immediately see something as half finished, right. and then something as finished, and something as emerging, and something as present. Mm. Whereas, you know, the fact of being able to see multiple perspectives and multiple kind of spaces more holistically which i think is really needed also in having other approaches to the way we treat our resources on earth Mm. Mm. yeah it was just interesting because again like this piece of art gave me an experience or like made me aware of a way of thinking that i don't usually think about the last thing you said i think is a really important point about the ecological, like how we relate to the earth and the ecological implications of it. Because if you think in the normative perspective mode, there's a sense of mastery, like you, the subject, the thinking conscious being are the center and everything else is in relation to you. And that is dangerous in terms of how we relate to nature, you know, as like everything is from our point of view. Everything is centered on we, the conscious being who can like make use of what we see, nature as natural resources and that sort of thing. This goes off on another whole tangent, but Heidegger writes about this. Like he doesn't talk about perspective explicitly, but he's talking about this paradigm. In any case, what you said about the Chinese painting is a really important point, I think. 
if you think about this relating to nature in a way where, as you say, there's multiple perspectives, and I would also say even beyond the multiple perspectives, like a constant like nature creating itself through interactions of water and rock and air, we're just one small part of that. It's not about us looking at it as the center. We can find our way into it or we can realize that we're a part of it in different ways and at different moments, but it's something that is creating itself through all of it, the interaction of all its elements rather than through its relationship to us. Mm -hmm. So I think that creates a whole different ecological orientation, which is one that we urgently need right now. I also just noticed that it's actually recreating itself because in the, I guess it's a lake and then you have this little mountainside and then it actually reflects like mm -hmm. as when you look in in a, in a lake that's very still you can see your own reflection mm. and this is also reflected so it's kind of you mm. see you know how it's created mm. again right just on mm. the opposite um you need to do through reflection yeah yeah mm -hmm. right you talked about one part that you like now about travel is also this kind of disorientation and I was thinking about this orientation in terms of this hand scroll because initially when we talked about choosing this hand scroll and this piece of art, when I looked at it, I also felt disorientated. But now when you talk about the different perspectives, I have a different feeling now mm -hmm. than disorientation. How would you describe the difference? Like. I guess disorientation is an opposite to orientation, so I would seek orientation. And mm. disorientation would be that I don't really know where to focus, and maybe my goal would be to have an overview. That is my subjective mm. understanding of that word. Whereas having the possibility to enter different kind of perspectives, those are possibilities, right, that I can mm. explore, which seem more um liberating maybe because there isn't one central overview towards which to orient mm. so it wouldn't be disorienting as much as multiply oriented or not oriented right other kinds of experience yeah mm. so also, when we look at this hand scroll and we go from right to left, as you said, then it seems like repetition in the landscape mm -hmm. is an important part of this journey when you look at the hand scroll. But still, all the mountains are kind of independently depicted, so they're different mm -hmm. from each other, and at the same time, they kind of look similar, so they are repeated, but differently. Mm -hmm. And to me, that almost seemed like a memory role. So what I mean is, for example, when you think back at an experience you have had on vacation and you mm. visit it internally, mm. you might see the same mountains, but they look slightly differently. They are maybe a little bit disturbed or you focus on the conversation more when you go back in the memory. And at some mm. point you focus more on the atmosphere and what you felt. Mm. So that was just like a comment I had and I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. You mean in terms of the, the constant variation of the mountain forms and... Yeah, and things. thinking about yeah. travel memories. Mm -hmm. oh, memory is a big topic. Uh, yeah, it's something I think about a lot. Memory is, is a central 
part of travel as it's a central part of life. And it's also um, less stable than I might want it to be. And something that I want to come to terms with, which is that I feel like so much of who we are is based on memory. Like the accumulation of memory over time is this is how you know you know who your friends are and your acquaintances and as opposed to total strangers you have memories with them and shared experience and it doesn't just go away you don't have to start over every day so i feel like memory is like a core fabric of our personhood and yet it's constantly being woven and unwoven you know this is just philosophical speculation i mean nobody really knows although if you think about the way psychoanalysis talks about dreams and then there's a lot of let's say research done on memory which i don't know much about but like i guess it's pretty established that we do change our memories over time right so just the way like with a dream even the moment you wake up you've already changed it and then when you look back on it i know because i write down my dreams and sometimes i look back and then i'm remembering more what i wrote down rather than what the dream actually was so I find that very troubling. I mean, I want to come to terms with it, but because memory is so central to who we are, and yet we can't just think of it as some fixed thing that we'll never lose, it's shifting. It's like there's some thread that connects it. If there wasn't, I feel like if there wasn't anything stable in memory, you really wouldn't know who your friends were, or you know, everything would just change overnight. But there is a stability there. It's one where you where there's a lot of movement and by the time you're looking back at a memory that's at some distance, it's some combination of some important part of who you are with something that you're creating right now. A story you're telling yourself now about who you are. It's interesting how important memory is for travel. It's obvious because memory is important for everything. But the way it's brought so much to the fore with travel, when I was growing up, my father always took a lot of uh, photographs on our travels and they were slides like physical slides, not this is before the digital age. So you yeah. put them in a slide carousel and you look at the photographs. It was a very important ritual. It was a big part of travel. And it wouldn't even necessarily show it to other people, which often I know happens. But like in our family, it was more like we would sit down and look at the trip we took two months ago. And then maybe a year later, we might look at it again. And we took the trip, but we're looking at the images and remembering and the thing is, the photograph presents itself as a kind of document, as in like, this must be how it really was, because it's in the photograph. And then you remember the place, and then how much are you reconstructing from the photograph? How much is real? I don't know. For my family, anyway, looking at the travel photographs and remembering and talking about the trip months or years later was an important part of the travel experience. But again, as you just said, that photographies have like a certain kind of perspective Right. Yeah. So again, you are then introduced to one kind of perspective and that becomes maybe your frame for remembering it if it's very, like, if you can't really remember it that well. Right. So it's, if you rely too much on the photographs, um, it's, it's distorted in a particular sort of way based on that kind of frame. Of course, there are other ways of remembering travel that are also important. You travel with someone you talk about, remember when such and such happened and you might remember it slightly differently and then you and negotiate that. Or just, I've traveled a lot on my own as well. Sometimes there are just moments, it's nothing to do with a photograph, it's nothing that I have any anything to look at, but they're just burned in my mind, like peak experiences. And those, like when I think of the place, they're so important to me that this is where there's a lot at stake with this question of memory, because I really want to believe these memories 
have survived. I don't accept, I, or I would have trouble accepting that they were fabricated because they're so important for my life experience. And an example is when I went to India and I went to visit this temple from the early Middle Ages, well, the Pallava period in, in South of India. And it was right by the Indian Ocean and it was sunset. And after like visiting this temple, there's like nobody there. It's just me and it's this temple, the stone temple by the ocean. I walked around the other side of it and there were a bunch of kids like going swimming and they like with, with all their clothes on. And um, I don't know, like 12 years old or something. And one of these kids came up to me and, and took my hand and said, welcome to India. It was obvious I'm a tourist because I'm white. So they could see I was a tourist, but like, I treasure that memory because it was so warm. It was such a special moment. I'd just been to this temple and it was sunset. I was having this experience of like the full wonder of a new place. And then this person I've never met before, this child just comes up to me and says, welcome to India. I, I remember that vividly. And when I think of India, I remember that moment as a moment of like being embraced by the place, by the, by the person, by the child who said that, but also by the place. And that memory is, it's just one moment out of many in a, you know, two week span, but it's like stands out as more important than like so many other moments that are completely forgotten. Things that I thought were important, like I don't remember the inside of this temple at all, even though that's why I went to this town, but I remember what happened after instead. So in that sense, those kind of memories, those like peak experiences that I remember are what define, what make travel matter for me. So Jen, ahead of this conversation, as we were also agreeing on the piece of art for today, mm -hmm. and to talk about disorientation, you also mentioned that you have a similar disorientation when you go somewhere new to the disorientation you have in the night, like when you dream. And now we just touched a little bit upon it. And most of us do not have an overview in when we are dreaming. I at least don't. And I don't know where I am necessarily, or maybe I have an idea, but even my idea of where I am and where I actually am don't coincide. Like maybe I think I'm home, but it doesn't look like my home. I was just curious to hear your thoughts on that and how you see the parallels between that kind of way of experiencing space and navigating and the disorientation and then going to a new destination. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good comparison. I mean, in terms of getting deeper into what travel is, for me, the comparison to dreams brings something out um, because it's the part that's the hardest maybe to quantify other than in poetic language and I'm not a poet so <laughs> but uh yeah like with dreaming I think about for instance when you say there's no overview that's a really important point I think about the way dreams are a kind of free association of things there may be in the unconscious wishes that are the unconscious feelings that are driving the dream there's a reason these things are put together but it's not obvious and it's certainly not a rational reason Like it could be a person in the dream that you identify as one person, but actually looks like someone else. And later in the dream, it becomes someone else. Or it could be that like, as you say, this is your house, but it doesn't look like your house. Or this is your house, but it's in a landscape that's from a completely different place from where your house is. And they're just in the dream, they're somehow together. And I think the point is that there is no overview. 
it's not like there's some kind of even very irrational surrealist key that's putting this all together. It's more just like a network of connections. You work with those connections without a big picture. And then I think of this idea from Freud of secondary revision, where you wake up and at the moment of waking up, your brain like uh, makes it more coherent. It's like almost like you want to tell yourself the story of the dream as if there was an overview. And then I sometimes try to write down the dreams. And even though I try to preserve their absurd character, writing down the dream, it already starts to take on more the character of a story. So it's like in those stages after the dream, we try to impose an overview, which isn't really there, because that's how we make sense of things. But the actual dream isn't an overview. And I think even, even in the secondary revision, because that's all we have to work with, you still get a sense of clearly association of things that don't necessarily fit together, right? So there's still a clear awareness of its non-overview character. If you can engage travel in that way, I think that's like a very authentic experience of travel. Maybe like the, the thing I was describing where my father would put together slides and then we'd like look at them and tell the story of the trip we took. That's the secondary revision. But that's like writing down the dream later and making it into a story. But the actual moment of travel, it wasn't like we knew that this was like day three of 12 and it was like going to be different from this part because of this reason and different from what's going to happen a week later because of this reason, which we see in retrospect. But we're just having some disorienting moment of experience, not knowing what to make of it yet. And then it gets, in retrospect, maybe it gets normalized. But if you can preserve in memory, some of the character of that disorientation, then that's more like the dream experience, where you don't have an overview because you don't know this place and you don't know what's coming next. It's not part of your daily routine where you have a pretty good idea of like the sequence of things. So you're just, it's just something different and you, you don't have an interpretation. You don't haven't processed it. You're just receptive to it. In that sense, I think disorientation is great in travel. Or if not disorientation, as you were saying, maybe you were reframing it in a more meaningful way. It's not disorientation, it's, it's non-orientation. It's multiple. It's some kind of other re relation to the world than like fitting it into the big picture that you already know. And can you be open to it and not just see what you expect to see, but see something new? I feel like any moment in life can do that. I don't think you need travel. But what's great about travel is it makes it happen. If I walk outside my apartment in Berlin, every single thing I see is new, but it's new in a very subtle way. It's the same shop I walked by yesterday. It's just that like it's different weather today or like a different person is standing in the shop window. It doesn't feel that different. Whereas with travel, it's so obviously different when you go to a new place. It wakes you up maybe to the non-overview character of reality and as you were saying like that what yeah i'm just latching onto the terms you use because i think they're really helpful like this non-overview character of reality is a dreamlike the dreamlike character of reality that things are thrown together in ways that we can't necessarily make sense of but that are meaningful in just in their juxtaposition or just the fact that you are here at this moment and these things are here and you're in a shared space of time um, can you be open to that and not right away try to like make sense of it in a familiar way and maybe even like art pieces such as Qingming's hand scroll yeah. can be a way to practice that approach. It's also interesting what you say because on one hand you, you are kind of encouraging experiencing everything as 
as the first time with what comes with it, you know, this uh, sort of like disorientation or these associations that are put together and you experience that. But at the same time, you have also said that your memories are really, really important to you. And I guess it's because they, I guess you don't experience them in the same way. Mm -hmm. I feel like there is like a contradiction there and I think they mm -hmm. need sure. to live side by side, but it was just something I, I noticed. Well, also, and what we were talking about earlier, um, the like my experience with this first visit to Florence, the imagination of the, the, the fantasy I had of the place before going there um, is also contradiction because the contradiction between what you're bringing of yourself to the place, which could, doesn't have to correspond to the reality of the place at all, and the strangeness and newness of the place, which grabs you. So, so yes, it is a contradiction. It may not be something specific to travel. I think it's something that's true of life experience, that there's this inherent contradiction that, you know, I would want to embrace the contradiction, but embracing it is putting it in a very positive way, I, as if it's like always going to be a good thing. But I think there's a constant danger that one or the other gets uh, obscured. If you're so living in daydream and poetic imagination, you really don't see what's there. And if you're so like in the dreamlike moment of strangeness, it doesn't take on any meaning for you until you do give an interpretation or connect it to your own life. So like a hundred percent one or the other, I think would be in both ways be alienating. It, this is reminding me of a thesis that a student of mine just wrote. It was about landscape, Leonardo da Vinci's landscape paintings and drawings. And she was talking about the human relationship to nature and her, what she came to over the course of this thesis was the, the notion, and it really came to it over time with a lot of work, notion that looking at nature in a purely anthropomorphizing way, as in like just the way we want to see it, creates a complete alienation from nature. But also looking at nature as something that is completely objective and has nothing human about it. It's just, it's like in a, let's say a hardcore scientific way is also alienating because we can't empathize with it, but that some kind of interplay between our subjective feeling about nature and being open to what's there was necessary to have a kind of empathy that would lead to ecological awareness. I think she had a real point. And I think what you were pointing out about the contradiction leads in the direction that her thesis was, which is that you can't just talk about one side or the other as an adequate like if you really want to have a meaningful relationship to nature it's some for her it was some combination of this investment of her own subjectivity and the experience with the awareness of what something we couldn't possibly imagine um and she was talking about nature specifically but i think this is also true of travel even whether it's a city or anywhere else right it's, it's something where it has an it's sort of infinity of possibilities to offer us if we're open to them, but it's offering them to us and it becomes meaningful to us because it meets our inner life in some way. It's not just objectively interesting. Like that's a certain scientific view, which is also great in its own way, which is more objective. It's just, just about everything is interesting because you're learning something. But travel is not just scientific research. So that's where this, you know, 
objective side comes in. I think we come to full circle here. I can I can feel like that these themes are mm. you know repeating, but as in the painting, they have different forms so mm -hmm. in our conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's quite or like in the hand scroll. So that's quite interesting. Now we are at our final three questions. Mm -hmm. um, so for a person who wants to think further about art and imagination that we have been talking about as a way to also understand what it means to travel and the anticipation when going on a trip, where is a good place to start this journey? You mean specifically with an experience of art? Like, it can also be something else. So it's just because we talked about an art piece today, but whatever comes to your mind, I think is the most important. Hmm. Well, I guess I found from my experience that, as you were saying to like, circle back to the Muller theme in a, in a different way, this interplay between your like imaginative experience of travel and the like openness to the new i sometimes find that happens if i'm traveling to a place that i have some kind of desire some kind of fantasy about like there might be a work of art there that i want to see but what happens when i'm there is something very different than what i expect like a perfect example is that temple in Mamalapuram in India that I described by the ocean. Say, I know that's not very specific, but like traveling somewhere where you have some kind of real personal investment. For me, it was often like something I saw in a movie that I really loved and I'd seen the movie many times or something from the book that I've read, but like something where you have a personal investment. I feel like that's a good place to start because you go right away with this sense of meaning about the place. But the irony being, I mean, just speaking from my experience, I know maybe people have different experiences, but the irony being that that's really going to a place with that personal investment um, is the is the excuse for something else to happen. Or it's like the first step in which to something actually quite different, which is that if you are thinking about this thing from in the imaginative sense, sitting at home, that doesn't change. It can be whatever you want it to be. But the moment you go to a physical place, it changes. And the change is what's exciting. So it could be anything. Like if you're going to talk about art, like some work of art you really love. And I'd say especially not something in a museum because it's very hard unless it was unless it's something like post-1960s that is made um, like an installation piece that's made to be seen in a gallery. Most works in museums um, I think are not as full an experience as if they're in the original site. Well, pre-modernism, like since the late 19th century, works were made to be in museums. But like if you're talking about Renaissance art or say Indian art or Chinese art, the ones we've been talking about today, going to a place where there's a work of art in a physical location that, that is like that it was made for is a good place to start because then that takes you to that place. And then you can have the experience of the full richness of the place, which might be a temple, in India, or it might be um, a landscape in which this chapel is situated that has the sculpture you went to see. So that's that would be my suggestion. Like start with a work of art you're excited about that you've, that you've imagined seeing, but that's in an interesting place where there's a lot of other things going on, like in a city context or in a beautiful landscape, and then see what happens.
What gives you a sense of belonging and hope for our world at this moment when traveling? Sense of belonging and hope for the world? A friend of mine was to, uh, had, um, is very interested in this idea of resonance. We talk about it sometimes. And resonance is is like in her in her description, it's not the same as harmony because harmony is where the like if you think of pitches in music, they're different pitches that are they're very different, irreducibly different from each other, but they somehow belong together, like notes in a chord. Whereas resonance in her description is where they change each other. So it's not just that the notes belong together, but the, when this string is sounding, it's actually changing this string, which then changes the other string, so that like there's a there's a back and forth dialogue. Um, and I would say resonance with a place, and I would say most of all resonance with other people. But that's part of travel too. So it's I wouldn't, I would say resonance with the travel experience. Um, whether whether it's that I'm in a place, it can be by myself, like walking in a forest, and I suddenly feel totally like there's some kind of dialogue between me and the place. But also people I randomly meet like this, again, the story I told about India, but I have many other stories where you just randomly meet people and there's some kind of moment of connection. Those moments of resonance where there's some kind of genuine dialogue, unexpected, coming out of the, the travel that you're engaged in, um, that's what gives me maybe hope because I like see so much alienation in the world. And I also would say with travel in particular, um, I really want to hesitate. That <laughs> be I don't want to be too polemical, but like the tourism industry is in some ways like really encourages alienation, like the unsustainable kind. Like you see in Venice, like just go there and buy a lot of stuff and get back on the cruise ship. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about an extreme case, but like there's so much pressure to do a more alienated kind of travel where you're kind of um, not connecting to the people or the places, or the culture around you. But it's not just about learning about the culture. I don't mean by connecting just that you know a lot about the history of Venice before you go to Venice, but more just this resonance thing. So there's so much in travel that can do the reverse, that can be very alienating and, and, and make you kind of wish you were home again. But if you can have the reverse experience of resonance with the place, then that, that for me gives me real hope that like that this alienation thing isn't the whole story. If our listeners want to follow your steps on this uh, green track that you're on, where can they find more about you and your work and stay updated on your research projects, publications and other things that you might be engaged in? Well, <laughs> they can go to Bad College Berlin. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say that would be the main thing would be like the Bard College Berlin website. For instance, there's also um, a student blog um, years ago, a student did an interview of me. So you could find this interview with me of me on the blog and and um, and you can see what courses I'm teaching. So yeah, the Bard College Berlin website is the obvious thing. I mean, every once in a while I publish something, but like it's not like there's some kind of centralized place other than a Google search. I at least feel very privileged to have you like on this conversation because yeah, you really have to be in one of your courses or something like this in order to start to see art history, I feel like from a different point of view, which is then another conversation. Mm. Um, but for now, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today and that it was a pleasure to have you here on the green track and for this conversation. 
if there are anything else that you want to share with us, feel free to do that. Otherwise, uh, thank you for, for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Dear listener, thank you so much for joining us on this last step on our journey for the fall season on the green track. In this episode, we got to talk about disorientation as an integrated part of traveling. We experienced how Wang Qingmeng's hand scroll is mimicking travel memories and the importance of these memories when we come back home. We talked about dreams as a form of travel, which we all go on but rarely see as a journey. We will continue this journey, however, on the green track in 2022. And I already have a few titles in the pipeline and a little surprise until then. But I also believe that many of these episodes are worth listening to a second time. So keep on listening, keep on sharing and spreading the word of this podcast. Thank you for your support, dear listener. I will end this season now with the following quote from Jeff. If you think in the normative perspective mode, there's a sense of mastery, like you, the subject, the thinking conscious being are the center and everything else is in relation to you. And that is dangerous in terms of how we relate to nature, you know, as like everything is from our point of view. Um, Everything is centered on we, the conscious being who can like make use of what we see, nature as natural resources and that sort of thing.